0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith broadcasting remotely. Coming up, we talk to domestic violence prevention advocates to learn why calls for help have increased over the last six months. Some shelters are housing women and children in hotels to keep up with demand. We talk with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the Prudence Crandall program in New Britain. First, much of the state has reopened, but a lot of us wonder, how long will it last, especially when students are back in school or on campus? Joining us now by phone is Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. What questions do you have for him? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Governor Lamont, welcome back to the show.
2: Good morning, Lucy.
0: So I just want to jump in. We know that not everyone is happy that you extended the state of emergency until February, which allows you to continue issuing executive orders. Tell us why you felt the need to extend this state of emergency, Governor.
2: Because we would have had uh, 70 executive orders all expire on September 9th. And uh, it would have been, I think, a bit of a madhouse to have me and the legislature sit down and figure out uh, what restaurants and what bars and what capacity um, and what uh, immunities uh, to extend and what not to in that short period of time. So I appreciate the legislature, you know, giving me another um, five months. Actually, we're going to sit down with the legislature collaboratively and over the next couple of months, um, figure out which of the executive orders ought to be refined and which should continue a little longer.
0: Mm. But how do you respond uh, to some who see the fact that you've put out all these executive orders over this time as an abuse of power, especially when they see numbers like hospitalizations go down? Can you explain uh, the metrics you're looking at, why you feel the need to extend this emergency?
2: Uh, I think you've seen um, hospitalizations go down. I think you've seen infection rate go down. I think think you've seen, you know, three months in terms of uh, uh, some of the lowest infection rates in the country because we've uh, been able to work collaboratively uh, with the people of the great state of Connecticut uh, and our e- executive orders in terms of how we slowly and cautiously reopen the economy, but doing it with public health and safety first.
0: But because those numbers are looking good compared to other states, you know, residents, uh, some would say, well, then why not uh, maybe lift some of these mandates? I mean how do you respond to that?
2: Well, remember, when you say mandates, um, most of what we do is deregulatory. Uh, most of what we do is um, making it easier for hospitals to hire people and nursing homes to hire people and uh, nursing homes to move COVID infected people into separate facilities. It was uh, when you say mandates, actually, we were relieving many mandates just to allow um, our healthcare system to react more uh, quickly.
0: Mm. Lori is calling in from Milford. Lori, what's your question for the governor?
3: Um, I have a question, and thank you, Governor, for uh, coming on. But I was wondering, um, how do you, um, it's serious enough that your emergency powers were extended um, through the November elections, but there's a picture of you not wearing a mask and shaking hands without gloves at a tennis club, um, is my first question, how do you explain that disparity? And my second question is, why did the legislature and your office figure it out, which powers you needed and which you didn't, prior to now? You knew this was coming.
2: So I'm wondering, Just is, are we being gaslit here in Connecticut? Wow. Um, well, good morning. Uh, you're right. I, I played on behalf of the state employees' uh, uh, charitable fund uh, uh, a match on Saturday, and, uh, you know, it was tennis, so we were pretty socially distanced, and um, you're right, we didn't wear a mask while we were playing, um, but we were careful uh, before and afterwards. Um, no, we've been uh, working with the legislature along the way. I mean, let's face it, in April and May, Lori, um, things were um, moving very fast uh, in terms of um, uh, COVID and the spread and how we had to react. And, uh, you know, now it's a, a little more a uh, discipline just because we've got our uh, infection rates are pretty low. So it's, uh, we're collaborating with the legislature, working with our public health commissioners, working with the private sector, working with the superintendents of schools, um, as we figure out how to continue to cautiously reopen. And that includes, uh, you know, some executive orders.
0: Mm. Uh, Governor, before we move on, you say that you've been working collaboratively with the legislature. We know that there are members in the Republican caucus who say that they're not being consulted. So how are you? How are you going to work with them moving forward? Can you talk about that?
2: Uh, yeah, we've. Um, I think we. Paul Mounds, our chief of staff, uh, is on a, a weekly uh, um, call with the leaders. Uh, probably not each and every uh, member of the legislature, but the leaders in terms of. Um, how we're trying to uh, continue to reopen the state in a cautious way.
0: You can join our conversation with Governor Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about schools, uh, Governor Lamont. We know that many students are back in school, whether it's uh, for the full week. A lot of schools have opted for hybrid, so part in school and part learning at home uh, via the computer. We're seeing uh, more than 12 schools since the start of the year uh, having cases, uh, positive cases of Coronavirus and so they may close or and I'm just wondering when we think about the guidance you've given school districts, is this the approach that you want them to take if there is a one positive Coronavirus case that they should be closing school for a period of time?
2: No, 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 no. Um, You know, especially for uh, K through eight, we're trying to keep uh, that fourth grade class um, unto itself as a pod as a cohort. So that if there happens to be an infection in that one class, it's just those, um, you know, 20 students in that teacher who would have to uh, quarantine, uh, not the entire middle school or not the entire school. Uh, but our schools are handling this really well, I think, because um, they are finding in those um, isolated cases where there have been some infections, um, who else perhaps were you in contact with, and if you were not just in your cohort in your third grade class. But beyond that, um, we have to know that so we can um, do the quarantine there as well. Look, it's, um, we're doing this cautiously, one step at a time. I'd say that um, a third of our schools have opened a full-time K-8. through A third of them plan to open full-time uh, K-8 through know, over the course of the next few weeks. And the other ones are going to um, uh, be a little more cautious going forward. Um, the one I worry about the most is New Haven, which hasn't opened at all.
0: Mm -hmm. You said that you don't want to see uh, schools closed when uh, there is a positive case or if there are uh, some cases, but that's what's happening. So do you feel like the state needs to provide more guidance or clarification to school districts about how to handle when a case pops up?
2: Well perhaps. I would say in most cases it's uh, just the cohort or those for whom that, say, student was in contact with. but you're right, for some of the smaller schools where the kid has gotten into contact, they do contact tracing. They find perhaps um, uh, that student was in contact with uh, two or three different grades, not just uh, his or her own class. Then they do more broad-based. Uh, look, we're, we're there. We're working every day with the superintendents, every day with the principals. So far, I think they're doing pretty well.
0: You can join our conversation with Governor Ned Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, The positivity rate in our state, uh, Governor, has gone above 1%, I believe, at least three days last week. Uh, The Current's reporting that a growing number of infections are among individuals ages 10 to 19. So when you see that number creeping up, you see more cases among young people, should schools have reopened at the start of this year?
2: I think so. Let's put this in the context. We are still one of the very, um, the lowest states in terms of infection rate in the country. And you're right, they probably um, peaked up maybe one half of one percentage point um, to you know 1.2 uh, compared to, that to North Dakota, which is at 20. Um, so I, I do believe that... Um, opening these schools cautiously, let's give these kids a little bit of face-to-face education um, as much as we can. I can't tell you, Lucy, what uh, the world's going to look like during flu season in November, but um, I do believe that if we can safely get our kids back to school, uh, even for this next uh, couple of months, that's a big plus.
0: Uh, Kelly tweeted to us that she wants to know, is there a positive uh, rate that the state has in mind where things would need to shut down?
2: Uh, we, we have given some guidance uh, to the different schools. Remember um, Danbury, going back a couple mm-hmm. of weeks now, they spiked up to 7%. And uh, very quickly uh, they said we're going to delay opening the schools for a few weeks. They're going to delay opening of Western Connecticut for a few weeks. And, um, and now we we brought in the troops. We brought in the testing. We brought in uh, people are really good about quarantining. We brought the rate down there. And I think Western Connecticut's admitting students again
0: this week. So you can join our conversation with Governor Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before I take more calls, uh, what can you do to help uh, school districts with testing? I understand uh, Hearst reported that the state has a goal of testing 1 million uh, by December we, will the state be investing in more mobile testing to go out to, to schools when a case pops up or to a college town like Mansfield, where we're seeing 122 a positive UConn students so far?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, uh, first of all, that article you know, correctly pointed out that we're really one of the top states in the country in terms of testing uh, and getting the testing out to the community and free at all the federally qualified health centers at over 160 locations around the state. Uh, uh, The one we're looking at is the uh, antibody testing, where, um, you know, let's say back in July, um, we thought we'd be able to test everybody and see what antibodies they had built up and see if they had built up some immunity. And uh, I think that's more suspect these days. Uh, People are not putting as much credibility in the antibody testing. Uh, So um, we're, we're not doing as much testing
1: there.
0: You can join our conversation. Dan's calling from Wilton. Dan, you're on the show.
1: Hi Mr. Lamont. Um I'm a football parent and uh my son is a senior um and I'm just wondering you know I've looked at the CDC website and through September 10th 70 youth ages 5 through 18 have died from COVID um and they represent 20% of the US population. Now this is 0.04 percent of all COVID deaths, Um, and yet we are not allowing these kids to do the activity that they love in school, which is football, or the Department of Public Health is saying that they're doing it for our kids' health and safety, et cetera, et cetera. The numbers just don't add up, and we have 35 states that are playing football right now, high school football, some are in their fourth week with no issues. How can you respond to the four to 5,000 youth in our state that are losing what they love?
2: Yeah, Dan, uh, that's a good question. Um, it follows on Lucy's question just uh, two minutes ago that, um, you know, that sort of ages 10 to 30 um, group are the ones where the infection rate is uh, going up the fastest. But, you know, more importantly, what um, all the public health experts we've talked to have said is, look, football is a uh, high-risk sport. Uh, and uh, I appreciate CIAC. They came in. We spent a few hours uh, with our public health folks, uh, you know, masking and, um, and, and ways that they thought they could reduce the, the risk a little bit. Um, I think uh, the public health people's recommendation is it's still a high-risk sport, better to do it in the spring than do it in the fall. We're going to know so much more in the spring. But uh, really that's a decision that's up to each and every uh, community and uh, up to the local superintendents.
0: Kai is calling in from Simsbury. Kai, you're on the show.
2: Yes, hi, Governor. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. I have a question around the testing strategy. Um, I'm especially wondering for my wife who works with private clients who have infants, and she goes into their homes, so she wants to make sure that she's healthy when she goes there and wants to get tested on a frequent basis, and she's having a hell of a time. Sorry for the word. She's having a really hard time to find places where she can get rapid testing where she gets the results right away because it doesn't help her to find out seven days later that she may have been positive or not. And then also there are lots of places that are being recommended for testing that charge 300 or more dollars because they're saying it's the use of an urgent care facility. So what can we do to get more rapid testing to know right away if we are a hazard for the rest of the community or not? Well, it's, uh, you can get tested at the fairly qualified health centers, we said, um, you know, at no cost, um, symptomatic or, or or asymptomatic. And um, our, our team has done a pretty w- good job, I think, of using local labs to get the results. So you're not waiting a week, but you're waiting uh, uh, a couple of days. I think you'll find the vast majority of the um, responses we're getting are within a couple of days. It's those other states where you have to send it across the country um, that maybe you can get a seven-day lag. Um, So I think we're doing a lot better on that. And if you go to the um, uh, public health department's website, we'll be able to show you where the closest um, federally qualified health center is or closest testing facility is so your wife can um, do that easily. Mm -hmm.
0: We got a lot of uh, social media uh, responses, Governor Lamont, uh, when they heard you're going to be on the show. uh, Michelle tweeted that uh, the patients in nursing homes around our state are suffering with limited visits leading to depression and anxiety. She wonders, with the cold weather approaching, is there a plan to expand visits to family indoors and uh, hopefully uh, lift some of the current restrictions?
2: Yeah, Michelle, um, you're right. Uh, Right now, we've uh, allowed visitations outdoors uh, because the weather permits it, and we're definitely looking to make it a little easier to see a loved one uh, indoors. It probably will require testing because, um, you know, how fast the infection can spread in the nursing home. So we're going to be taking a look at that over the next couple of weeks.
0: Mm. And what are the current guidelines for testing workers and residents at nursing homes, Governor? Governor?
2: Uh, I think we tested absolutely everybody, and uh, then we found that if we found zero infections um, over a period of time, we could hold off on the testing um, on a limited basis. I mean, the good news is that I'd say 99% of our nursing homes, we have brought down the infection rate and certainly the fatality rate uh, to close to zero. But, you're, um, but the, there have been one or two outliers that have been uh, very serious in their complications.
0: Mm. Uh, one of those uh, outliers uh, there's a disturbing story in the hartford current by dave altamari about i believe three rivers a nursing uh, facility uh, in the norwich area where a staff member reported uh, to work and she was sick and then there were a bunch and she ended up testing positive for coronavirus and there were a bunch of residents that also got sick and some died and some i'm wondering uh, your response uh, to that troubling case And when we think about, uh, you know, ways to to protect residents and the people that work in these facilities, Governor, in the next few months.
2: Yeah, Lucy, um, that person did not follow any of the rules, guidelines. Uh, The nursing home should be held accountable for not um, holding that person accountable. In turn, people went over to uh, the local hospital where uh, the infections went. And it just reminds you how contagious COVID is. So, uh, there will be, um, an investigation and there will be penalties just to make sure that all of our nursing homes around the state realize that, uh, uh these guidelines are enforceable. Mm.
0: And for the, uh, the providers, uh, these nursing homes that um, are owned by uh, uh, private companies that where you find that they did not take this serious enough. We know that so many elderly residents in our state died uh, in nursing homes after contracting COVID. And I'm wondering, you know, why the legal immunity has been extended by you uh, for hospitals and nursing homes? Why is it needed, Governor?
2: Well, let's, we're taking a look at that right now, but I'll tell you why it was needed. Uh, back in uh, April and May, when um, the nursing homes in particular were highly contagious, the number of people, um, you know, with infections, the number of people going to the hospital, when th- then they came back, you know, unlike some other states, we wanted to make sure they didn't go back to the nursing home, but they wanted to go back and convalesce in a separate COVID-only facility. And in order to do that quickly, um, uh, the nursing homes asked for some type of immunity, just because we had different nurses, different uh, transportation back and forth. And I think it was the right thing to do. And I do think it saved lives over the um, you know, near term. That's then, now's now. We're going to take a look at that immunity.
0: Sarah's calling in from Mansfield. Sarah, quickly, what's your question?
1: Uh, thanks, Governor Lamont. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, I am a small business owner. I'm an an esthetician, a skin therapist. And at this point, my business cannot be open. I see people for facials only and one person at a time. Um, And I'm just wondering why people can go into restaurants and be without their masks for several hours or go to a dentist, and orthodontist. But me, I'm wearing gloves. I can wear a mask, a shield. And the person I'm taking care of is without their mask for an hour. And then we are done with our service. And I clean and take care of everything to the highest standard in between. So, my business has been shut down since March, and I'm really, it's, it's really taken a toll.
2: Uh, that's, it's going to change. Uh, let's face it, in March, April, May, that close face to face contact, uh, we were pretty strict about. Uh, we're going to take a second look at that. David Lehman over at Economic and Development is um, taking the lead on that. You'll get a response pretty soon.
0: We just have a few minutes left with Governor Ned Lamont. You can ask him a question at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live, uh, Governor. I understand the rental assistance program that the state set up stopped taking new applications uh, two weeks ago, and I believe more than six thousand applied, but that there's not enough money to help all of them. So as uh, we anticipate uh, this pandemic continuing for some time, you know what more rental assistance will be coming out for families and how will the state resolve the housing crisis that some believe is right around the corner.
2: Uh, Yeah, we, we, um, put in place a stopgap measure, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars to provide a rental assistance and mortgage assistance. So people could stay in their homes, people could stay in their apartments. Um, got some money to landlords kept the non-eviction up through the end of October. And we've got to take a second look at that. To tell you the truth, uh, Lucy, you know, my hope was that um, the feds were going to have stepped up by now. And uh, part of that step up was to um, make it easier for people to stay in their homes, you know, provide an agreement with the landlords so they make a partial payment through the end of the year. Uh, They haven't been able to uh, get their act together down there. So uh, we, with our limited resources here in the state, are going to have to figure out how we can continue this uh, support a little bit longer.
0: Again, you can join our conversation eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Can we talk about voting? A lot of residents are looking forward to the November election. Many of them are going to vote by absentee because they want to stay safe uh, but there there is some uh people and and groups that are supporting a proposal, they want to see you and the lawmakers and the General Assembly allow early processing of absentee ballots uh, one week ahead of Election Day. So that would allow town clerks to process the outer envelopes and maybe contact voters who may not have signed or sealed their inner inner envelope because they don't want their votes to be voided. So would you support a proposal like that, Governor?
2: I think it does make some sense. Uh, We're going to be... Look, we, we saw what happened during the primary, and um, people were much more likely to vote absentee than they were in person. And if we see that uh, in this national election, um, you know, it's going to be overwhelming. Uh, I've I got to say, um, our colleges, our businesses uh, are going to uh, give folks a day off. We have thousands of volunteers. We're making those available to the registrars just so they can do just what you suggested, perhaps able to uh, – Pre-clear some of these ballots, be there to count ballots, be there to be ballot watchers at the um, polling uh, stations, uh, bring down the average demographic of the people who are, uh, you know, who are uh, there as uh, poll watchers. I think that's all important, and we're trying to gear up for that right now.
0: We heard from Miriam on Twitter, Governor. The, she writes, Metro North is now fining passengers $50 who refuse to comply with mask requirements. When will CT Transit follow suit with its buses where passengers cannot be assured that every other passenger is wearing a mask?
2: i tell you the truth. I thought they were. And uh, if that's not the case, let me look into that, Miriam.
0: Again, we just have a couple of minutes left with Governor Lamont. Uh, everyone is uh, worried about the next few months, uh, Governor, with this uh, second wave. And I'm wondering, uh, again, when we think about some of the restrictions that you've been able to lift, uh, what that means for businesses that haven't been able to open, including bars, uh, people that are still struggling to get through the unemployment uh, assistance line through the Connecticut Department of Labor. What can you tell them, the people that are still waiting for those checks? because they have rent due, because they have bills to pay.
2: So on the economy, uh, we have about 95% of our economy open. Um, We've done that ever since May 20th in a phased basis, and our infection rate has generally been going down. So I think we've done that pretty well. But you're right, bars, big indoor events, uh, we're still worried that those are very high-risk activities and uh, probably want to wait until we make sure we have therapies and testing and ways that we can make sure it doesn't flare up. Um, Department of Labor, um, uh, the federal government has finally figured out that they want to give a $300 true-up. It used to be $600 up until, uh, you know, a month or so ago. And those checks are going to start going out the door end of this week.
0: Again, you've heard Governor Ned Lamont here on Where We Live. Uh, Governor Lamont, we thank you. We hope to have you back soon.
2: Great, Lucy. Thanks, everybody. Nice talking to you.
0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to talk to domestic violence prevention advocates about the troubling trends they've seen over the last six months. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're shifting gears now to talk about this important story. Earlier this summer, local domestic violence advocates joined U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal and others to talk about the need for more federal support to address a rise in domestic violence during this pandemic. Joining us now with a local perspective on the phone, Karen Jarmok, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Karen, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, I, you know, we often talk about, you know, case rates uh, and compare it year after year. But we're in a time that is like uh, no other, and so I'm wondering for you and your partners, what have you seen over the last six months in relation to domestic violence in our state?
3: Well, thank you for having this conversation, and I know you're going to hear more from a local perspective from Barbara Damon, who oversees Prudence Crandall Center in New Britain. But what we're seeing statewide um, is uh, it's been a remarkable time. It's uh, been a challenging time uh, because uh, victims are reaching out for assistance like they never have before. And what we know is that 60% of those individuals reaching out for help are doing so for the first time. And so uh, we've been grappling with an overage in domestic violence shelters, for example, where we can't go over capacity, so therefore we have families in hotels. So between hotels and uh, domestic violence shelters, uh, the statewide, there's a 145% utilization rate. Um, that's an enormous number, and it's, it's difficult trying to keep families safe in two separate places for advocates who are working 24 seven on the ground um, and outreaching uh, in various remote ways, whether it's uh, through cell phone, through texting, through email. Uh, through, through live chats on our, our statewide hotline, uh, and it's, it's really been um, a challenge. But what I do know is that uh, this 400-plus advocates have been meeting that challenge um, and continuing to keep people safe.
0: Mm. Remind our listeners how many domestic violence shelters are in Connecticut, and when you say that uh, people that need help are being served now uh, by um, finding hotel rooms for them, I mean, that sounds troubling in itself.
3: Yeah, so um, there are 18 domestic violence sites in the state of Connecticut. Uh, fit, uh, 16 of those have actual shelters, uh, which range in size. And then there are two that have always utilized a hotel stay uh, to keep uh, individuals safe. Uh, and so what that means is that because we can't put families together in a room or individuals together in a room when we go over capacity, which we generally do more than 20 percent of the time as a standard, We've had to put families in hotels to keep them safe. And so, for example, the cost of that just in the month of June was $80,000 uh, over the past six months of the pandemic on uh, nearly $350,000. Unanticipated costs have been spent on keeping families safe in, uh, in shelters and in, in hotels.
0: Hmm. We know that that's an approach that the uh homelessness advocates have been using to people who are experiencing homelessness they're housing them and they're getting uh support from the state to do that. Um, how much money are you getting from the state of Connecticut for uh to house people in hotels when the shelters are over capacity Karen
3: so that's a great question, and what I would say is that the homeless uh system and the hoteling that they've been using is not an option for our domestic violence uh, families and survivors because of safety and risk. And so we haven't really been able to access uh, very limited funds uh, to help uh, support the exasperating cost of this. We do have a call this week actually with the Department of Housing and Department of Social Services to understand how we can meet this need because we know that it's going to be ongoing, right? So it's not just through 20, It's, it's gonna be well into 2021. 4CT Connecticut uh, has been very uh, supportive and and we hope more supportive as we continue to meet this challenge. But um, the state in and of itself has not, has provided limited amounts of funding for that more than $350,000 cost at this point.
0: Again, you're hearing Karen Jarmok with us on the phone, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, as we talk about the fact that uh, cases um, have risen in terms of the number of people calling uh, for the first time uh, to advocates for help, especially during this pandemic. Um, Karen, before I bring on uh, Barbara to talk about what she's seen uh, from um, her community, uh, for people who may be experiencing domestic violence or need help, what is the statewide hotline?
3: It's 888-774-2900. You can also go to www.ctsafeconnect.org and just click on a button to be able to text with an advocate immediately, bilingual in in Spanish and English, or um, talk to an advocate by phone or email or live chat.
0: Again, that's Karen Jarmok. Uh, Barbara Barbara Damon's joining us now on Zoom. Uh, She's executive director of the Prudence Crandall Center. That's in New Britain. It serves uh, nine different uh, Connecticut uh, communities. And it's it's one of more than uh, about two dozen shelters to help those experiencing domestic violence. Barbara, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I understand that the Prudence Crandall Center is the oldest domestic violence program in our state. So uh, tell us how many beds you have to serve people in need, and what have you seen over the last six months?
4: Yes, we are the oldest uh, domestic violence shelter in the state, um, and also the largest. We have 22 beds in our shelter facility, and like other domestic violence programs in the state, our services are pretty comprehensive, including court advocacy and counseling. Um, In terms of residential services, the emergency shelter is really the core of that safety net that we can provide with 24 seven staffing and phone access to services. Um, We also in 2009 were able to add um, housing programs to our services so that we can kind of help folks with that question about, well, what's next after a shelter stay? Um, We have 28 apartments that are available through that program, always full. And uh, the need obviously is much greater than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Our challenge has truly been that, you know, I've I've been doing this for 11 years at this particular program. And we have never seen numbers like we're seeing over this summer. Um, And I think that, you know, folks who have been isolated at home during this pandemic, Um, experiencing abuse in their homes without feeling safe or able to reach out for help. As the state has begun to open up, they have also begun to reach out for help in record numbers.
0: Now, I said uh, more than two dozen shelters. I think there's 18 domestic viol- violence shelters in our state. Barbara I just wanted to uh, clarify that. But tell us more about the people that you're helping, uh, whether they're women, men, children, and what they've been experiencing uh, in their homes, in their apartments, where uh, they're seeing the domestic violence uh, again, maybe more so than they have in the past. What's happening in their homes?
4: Well, I'll tell you, we know that domestic violence happens in all kinds of relationships, um, with women as victims, but also with men as victims, um, and it happens for people from all walks of life. And um, the reality that we find um, as service providers is that domestic violence certainly can disproportionately affect people who are um, have lower income and um, limited financial resources. Those are the folks who most often reach out to us for help uh, because they have fewer options available to them. During this time of isolation at home, uh, when we were all stay safe, stay home, right? We, we, we know this was not um, safe for people experiencing domestic violence. They may have been safe from the virus, but they were stuck at home, isolated with their abuser. And um, you know, we had great concern during these first few months in particular in March and April and May, Um, that folks were truly, truly unsafe at home, and they did begin to reach out, especially as the state reopened in May and June. Um, That's when we really began to see what the impact truly was for these folks.
0: Karen Jarmok, I'm wondering if you can add to that. When we say domestic violence, it's not always physical, but then I'm also thinking about during this pandemic, uh, so many Things that people have had to learn to adapt and when you hear that people are losing their jobs, having trouble paying the bills and there's more people at home, the stress builds and that can uh, be explosive uh, for some situations. Can you talk about uh, what you're also hearing from your other partners?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, through the statewide domestic violence hotline, uh, CT Safe Connect, we are hearing anecdotally that uh, victims, survivors are um, in addition to grappling with the circumstance of domestic violence, which again, we know can be psychological. It can be verbal. It can be in- intimidation and control. Um, it's also just real concerns around the implications of the pandemic. Um, for example, reductions of additional unemployment benefits, uh, concerns around the end of the eviction moratorium, um, and also just return to work worries uh, around child care and schooling for their children. Mm-hmm.
0: I understand that well, the fact that we're in this pandemic and the fact that we have to uh, keep our distance. Can you talk about in some situations where the abuser is is using COVID-19 as a, as a method to the manipulation?
3: It's a really important question. We have heard that um, as well from individuals who've been reaching out for assistance um, in such areas as, uh, one, using the pandemic to isolate. We know that isolation is a, is a strategy used by abuser, abusers. So to isolate someone from their friends, their family, their colleagues, it, it's made it actually an easier uh, methodology for them, um, blaming them in, in part perhaps if they became sick or, um, saying that they don't want that person to make them sick, um, and just really adding additional stressors, um, in any way that they can, uh, related to illness, um, and the shut-in uh, has definitely been a strategy that many abusive individuals have been uh, imparting upon their partner.
0: Again, you're hearing Karen Jarmok on the show. She's CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Also with us is Barbara Damon, Executive Director of the Prudence Crandall Center in New Britain. It's a domestic violence program that serves nine Connecticut towns. We're going to continue talking with them after the break. You can join us too. Again, if you or someone you know needs help, the statewide hotline is 888-774-2900. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshul, broadcasting remotely. Today we're talking about uh, increases in domestic violence uh, in our state. My guest, Karen Jarmok, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and Barbara Damon, Executive Director of the Prudence Crandall Center in New Britain, a domestic violence program that serves nine Connecticut towns. Uh, Karen, uh, because uh, we've been in this shutdown, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk more about how services and resources have... Uh, had to be curtailed. I'm thinking about when people need court protection uh, from their abuser and how that situation is being remedied, if at all.
3: Sure. So I was really interested in earlier your conversation with the governor around the um, executive orders and um, the conversation around whether or not he had the, the authority to continue them. I will say in terms of the governor's executive order to allow for online restraining orders Uh, That would have expired. He started that in April. It would have expired last week. Uh, But with his abilities, he was able to extend it. And we know that um, being able to apply for a restraining order online has been a remarkably uh, helpful tool for victims of domestic violence. And uh, nearly 500 times since April, advocates have been assisting victims uh, in applying for these orders online. So Um, That's been one shift, and we hope that it actually continues permanently when the legislature goes into session, uh, hopefully uh, within the next couple of weeks. Um, I think the whole idea of remote advocacy has really uh, shown to be a very effective way of uh, reaching out to individuals, uh, whether that be phone, texting, emailing. I know that we've seen uh, more than 60%, 64% actually increase over the previous year during this pandemic in terms of how advocates are really conservatively reaching out to individuals they haven't connected with in a while to ensure that they're safe.
0: Uh, again, Barbara Damon, I'm wondering if you could also talk about uh, the, the fact that the shutdown has impacted um, how people can get a restraining orders. Uh, again, there is a, a fix in this what, what Karen was talking about, but in terms of, of what you're seeing um, in terms of therapy and other ways uh, to help uh, clients that you're serving.
4: Sure. You know, I'm really concerned that, you know, when we look at the the number of folks who've applied for restraining orders, that those numbers are down so significantly from a year ago. And um, it just tells me that there is a reluctance um, for folks to reach out. Um, Having it available online truly has been a wonderful um, way for folks to connect. And I'm hoping to see those numbers go back to what we would typically see. Our services have continued either by Zoom or by telephone. Um, We have throughout the crisis, we've had our frontline staff working 24 hours a day in person in our emergency shelter and with our housing residents. Um, You know, we have really had to step up to this extraordinary need. We have never seen um, a level this high, Um, but we truly are not funded to meet the need. Uh, and just to give you a quick example, throughout the month of August, for most of the month, we had eight hotel rooms in use. For us, that meant that we had 19 people in our on-site shelter and 18 people in hotels, in essence, running a double shelter for this mm-hmm. time. Um, it's truly been a challenging time for, for nonprofits who um, just are, you know, are not funded to be able to take on these extra costs.
0: Uh, Karen and Barbara, do you anticipate that this is going to be the norm uh, as we continue in this pandemic, the fact that uh, you need more resources, but you're not getting that from both the state and the federal government? I mean, how are you going to continue to operate and meet these needs? Is anyone talking about this for the special session? Karen, how about you?
3: Sure. Uh, yeah, we're absolutely talking about this. And that's why we've been reaching out actively to both federal and state mm-hmm. lawmakers um, to really be strategic around what are the specific needs of the pandemic, whether it be hoteling or the need for what we call remote advocacy um, and the technology associated with that. Uh, lethality assessment. We know risk assessment is hugely important. Uh, to keep people safe so how do we uh, receive more funding for that and also for child advocacy because more and more children are being affected by domestic violence uh, within families uh, during this pandemic
0: so you've been talking with lawmakers i mentioned u.s senator richard blumenthal uh, earlier in the show so what's the likelihood that this money uh, will be uh, passed and in in your hands uh, to help uh, people here in connecticut karen what's the latest
3: so that's a, such an interesting question. If, 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 it's probably hard to believe, but the CARES Act funds that were passed back in March uh, by federal lawmakers with a sense of urgency have yet to make their way to the domestic violence organizations like that that which Barb is leading. Mm-hmm. So while they w- were receiving each of them an allotment uh, to help uh, serve victims of domestic violence during the pandemic, the monies uh, passed from the feds to the state have yet to make their way to the actual domestic violence organization.
0: Barbara, can you add to that?
4: Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all hands on deck, right? We, we are stepping up to provide services um, statewide all domestic violence programs working closely with the coalition. Um, It's our mission, it's what we will continue to do to make sure that people know that we're here, that services are available and that they have options. Um, It's challenging to do this relying on the balance sheets of nonprofit organizations each year Prudence-Crandall Center has to raise 30% of our $2 million budget from private sources. That's about $700,000. So we have that burden every year. Um, And so this has just truly added to that for us.
0: When we talk about a uh, demand increasing uh, earlier in the show, Barbara, so when people are answering this domestic violence hotline or answering chats, you're these are people that are working from their home, um, also trying to help people that are at home looking for help and have an abuser in their presence, whether it's physical or verbal. And so I'm just wondering what that transition has been like.
4: I'll tell you, we were able to pretty seamlessly transition to remote services. We've had the IT capacity to be able to do that. Um, We have continued throughout this time to have staff on site um, 24/7. So that has primarily been the staff answering those calls, but the rest of the staff are um, having to figure out how to connect in a real meaningful way with people on the telephone or by Zoom. Um, So that has built in challenges and uh, frankly, for my staff of 40 people, um, that's been the hardest part. They, this is a full-contact sport, right? They want to be right there with folks in the room, supporting them, um, and so it truly has been challenging. But they've done an amazing job. People's ne- needs are being met and are feeling supported, despite the fact that we're doing it remotely.
0: You know, uh, Karen, when we work from home or when uh, people are not around others as much as we used to be, it's harder to see if somebody uh, needs help or if there are signs of abuse. And so what can you tell our listeners about how they can check in on others if they they worry that something's going on in their home or apartment?
3: Sure. So a huge strategy used by abusive partners is to isolate Uh, their partner from others, uh, to have, uh, their, the power over them, uh, in all ways possible. And so if you are concerned about a family member, a friend or a coworker, uh, our suggestion is that, you know, figure out ways to be able to link to that person, connect to them visually, whether it's through FaceTime, perhaps you stand on their front porch, uh, or on the grass while you have a conversation or make a time to go for a walk with them, but uh, figure out ways also if you there's uh, some way to uh, create a, a message that if they are having a hard time, if something is wrong, that they could text a particular safe word so that you as their loved one um, and someone who cares knows that they may need help.
0: And Barbara, can you add to that?
4: Uh, you know, this is a time when we're seeing uh, folks experiencing more severe abuses uh, that they're reporting to us. The cases that are coming forward for shelter are even more high risk than usual. So I think the danger is really high and probably um, has escalated as a result of the um, the additional stress that we're all under related to COVID, as well as, uh, you know, financial stressors and all of that. So absolutely, uh, you know, reach out to folks that you know, get as connected as you can and um, watch for those warning signs. Um, so those, those signs that more control and more isolation um, is occurring. And um, just be, be there, be a source of support and let folks know that you're there for them.
0: Karen, we're almost out of time. Uh, Karen Jarmock, I understand there was an intimate partner homicide in Middletown in June, uh, the first uh, intimate partner homicide uh, during the pandemic. Again, as Barbara mentioned, uh, people are going to be isolated for some time uh, as we all wait for a vaccine. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, about uh, what we're seeing in terms of um, the trends in our state?
3: Well, I think that was actually the. Fourth, I could be wrong on that, but I will. I will get. The, I can get that accurate statistic for you. But we did see a few intimate partner homicides earlier in the year. We know, though, that uh, last year, for example, there were 14. Uh, so there's been a decrease in uh, IPV homicides, but um, that, of course, could be related to the fact that people are home. And the concern is that when they may take steps to leave, and when things start to open up, it, it can become more dangerous. Uh, And so the idea of access and the availability of resources from uh, Barbara's organization and the other 17 sites throughout the state is going to become increasingly critical um, as we aim to keep people safe. Mm
0: -hmm. Again, so four intimate partner homicides this year, but the one in June was the first one during the pandemic? Uh,
3: No. uh, Yes, yes, that's a good way. Yes, that's a good way to capture because the other ones were earlier in the year. You are correct.
0: Well, I want to thank Karen Jarmocca for talking with us about uh, these trends in our state. She's CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Karen, thank you for your time. Thank you. Also with us today on Zoom, Barbara Damon, Executive Director of the Prudence Crandall Center in New Britain. It serves nine Connecticut towns. Barbara, thank you.
4: My pleasure, Lucy. Thank you.
0: Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Uh, Tomorrow we're going to be talking about the child care crisis, whether your kids are back to work or you're still working from home. A lot of parents and families are struggling uh, to handle child care. We're going to have Beth By, the state's early childhood commissioner, on the show. You can join us tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. Thanks for listening.